Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here today. You know, I, I'm thankful this morning because I'm thankful that we get to gather week after week after week after week because it's times like this that, we're, that we realize, man, that's, that's really actually a gift that we have. And I'm thankful for those of you that are watching on live stream or maybe you're watching on Monday or Tuesday. And uh, thanks for taking care of yourself and those around you. We love we love that, and so it's good to be here. I'm also thankful for Jerry Bruce. Got to give him a shout-out because he's been doing a ton of communication and a ton of work on this stuff. And then also Bill as well. Absolutely. And I'm thankful for Grace. Can I tell you a story about Grace? Because I need a lot of Grace in my life. I don't know if you do as well. My wife, who I went on a date with for the first time almost 30 years ago, had to give me Grace from the very, very beginning. I had asked her out on a date, and we were going to go get pizza. I was going to be charming. She was going to like me. I had it all planned out. But I was a poor college student, and I didn't have my own car. <laughs> so I had to borrow one. So I borrowed my brother's 1963 VW Bug, totally vintage, cool car. But it didn't start. So we had to park it on a hill, or we had to push start it, pop the clutch. Anybody if you can remember, you know, popping the clutch? Yeah, lots of you guys. You get all your friends to do it. And so I thought, how, what, how am I going to do this? So, so, so I, I figured it out. I would just park on a decline, and I would distract her as we were coasting down, and then I would laugh really loud as we popped the clutch. <laughs> but first I went into the beauty salon. Hair 2001 is the beauty salon that her parents owned over off of Amadine Expressway, and Holly was the receptionist and the assistant. So my future wife, on our very first date, before we even went out, was washing my hair. <laughs> and it was good. Yeah, I liked it a lot. <laughs> and so we walked out to the car, and I was the perfect gentleman, and I had her distracted, and I laughed really loud, and I popped the clutch, and guess what happened? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so I had to come clean, and it was totally embarrassing. So I decided it's only a little car. So I got out, and I started to push it myself, and I jumped in, popped the clutch. Nothing. And then I did it again. And again, and pretty soon I'm, I'm pushing this thing all over the parking lot. It's July and it's hot and I'm starting to sweat. And finally I get in the car and I'm just irritated. Like, I don't know what's going on. And I look down. Oh, and I never turned the ignition key on. <laughs> Humbled from day one. Story of my life. <laughs> Why do we do stuff like that? You ever think about that? I, I don't mean like push a car around a, a parking lot. Why do we try to sort of hide the truth about ourselves? Sometimes we try to be somebody that we're not. And so we hustle and perform to try to get people to approve of us. And, and we really learn this from a young age. Never let them see a sweat. Come on, get in there. Don't show any weakness. Put a smile on your face. Look good for everybody. And even though we know that everybody we meet has some good and has some bad and actually probably has a little bit of ugly in their life somewhere, even though we know this, we, we still fall in to this performance of this charade. And it's not just the con artists and it's not just the politicians that are really, really good at this. You know who else is really good at this? Christians. <laughs> I know. I've seen it. I've done it. 
wow, it's amazing. And yet, and yet, we have a story that shows us something different. Why do we do this? You know, I don't know if it's because we have these puritanical roots in our country. I don't know if it's because we have this fear of judgment or, or something that, that goes along with so much of the history of, of Christianity. But I like how Robert McGee talks about it in his book, The Search for Significance. It's a great read if you've never read it. It's been out for about three decades now. And, and according to McGee, when we feel really insecure in and of ourselves, then our behavior can fall into one of four different kinds of traps that he unpacks in this book. For the boosting of our self-confidence or our ego or, or our sense of self-worth or significance. And he talks about these traps as the performance trap, the approval trap, the shame trap, which is probably the most painful of all, and then the blame game trap. And so we find ourselves trying to live up to certain standards and perform in order to feel good about ourselves, the performance trap. Or we find ourselves working really hard to get the approval of others and kind of sometimes hustling for that approval, the approval trap. Certain standards, certain others. Sometimes we find ourselves really avoiding any kind of real, even healthy risk, and we avoid vulnerability and being authentic because of the shame of our past. And then sometimes we just point the finger, or we know people that point the finger, and it's just, it's always somebody else's fault, and they're playing the blame game. Someday I'll, I'll unpack all of these things in a sermon series out in the future, but you can read that book. But we're all guilty of this at some point in time. And maybe guilty is the wrong word. We, we just, we struggle with this. No matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your past is, we've all dealt with this deception in the world. And I think it's a really hideous deception that humanity's always struggled with. In fact, in my opinion, it, it, it's done more harm than most of the things that life can throw at us. And that deception is centered around the idea that in some way, for some reason, we are just not enough. You're not enough. I'm not enough. And oh, by the way, God's not enough either. But if we read the story, we actually have a God that shows us something different. And so I want to invite you into that story this morning for just a little bit because we're going to kick off a brand new series called Six Words That Will Change Your Life, rooted in Psalm 23. And the very first word is enough. And all the other words are built on this foundational truth. And that truth is, is that enough is that deep sense and reality that comes from God that says, I love you just as you are and not as you should be. And therefore, you can see yourself that way as well. And one of the things that we see with enough is that when we embrace it, 
it actually puts wind in our sails and helps us accomplish things that we could never accomplish without it. You see, enough isn't an excuse to do less than excellent. Well, well, I just, I'm enough or whatever. No, it's actually the source of excellence. Enough is missional, and we cannot be the church unless we embrace enough. And so I want to invite you into this journey. And I want you to walk slow because it's difficult. I like how Brene Brown, a well-known researcher on shame, says that people who see themselves as enough somehow have developed a profound sense of inner worthiness. Rather than always thinking, I'm not good enough, they live with the belief, I'm enough. Grounded in this rock-bottom sense of their fundamental acceptability as human beings, we would call it the imago Dei, or being created in the image of God. For whom being good enough is plenty good, they can take hold of their courage. Do you need courage in life? And accept their vulnerability. Do you need to be more open in your life? and live wholeheartedly, listen to this, loving without reservation or guarantees. Imagine that. Living with courage to be imperfect. In other words, they're not afraid to let others see their imperfections. Opening themselves up fully to whatever life brings, good or bad, pain or joy. And then she says this, they are willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were which you have to absolutely do for connection. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're made for? Doesn't our world need more connection? But it's hard. (laughs) It's hard because you have people in your life and have people from your past and you have situations from your past and you can picture the people And you can picture the situations where the message that was given to you is that in some way, you're just not enough. You just don't measure up. It's hard because we live in a world where we're driven to be more and have more, to work our fingers to the bone at times. It's hard because oftentimes the message that we get, even from the people that love us the most, is not a message of enough, even from the church. It's not a message of enough. It's hard because we have to sometimes unravel the conversation that we have with ourselves, right? And we have to deal with the anger and the bitterness and the self-loathing and the other things that come along with this package of thinking that somehow in some way we're less than. And we have to deal honestly with these things. We need wise guides that can help us unpack these things. And enough is not an excuse to escape from reality. In fact, enough is a healing balm for our souls in the midst of reality. And it gives us new directions and new perspectives. Enough can change your life. Enough is part of one of the most beloved parts of the Bible, Psalm 23. In fact, it it, it starts that way. Enough is 
something that I was communicate, I have communicated for years using this psalm with people that have lost loved ones in counseling sessions, encouraging people. And because I experienced a kind of death in my life last year, I just decided to sit with this psalm and meditate and pray and journal. And like an old friend, it invited me to come home. To come home to a place of being enough and to be present to myself and to be present to God in a new way. And so for the next six weeks, all the way up through Easter, I want to invite you into this journey. And I hope you got a journal on the way in. If you didn't, get one on the way out. And I want to encourage you during the week, walk slowly through this old friend and write down your thoughts, things that you're thinking. Be honest. This old friend that says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And he guides me along quiet waters. And he restores my soul. He guides me in paths that are right for me, for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. And your rod and your staff, ah, they comfort me. You even prepare a table for me right in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And my cup, <laughs> it overflows. Surely your love and your goodness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, the Bible is a very long, sometimes difficult to understand, very diverse, sometimes even ambiguous story. But one of the things that always seems to rise to the top a theme from beginning to end is this idea of God's unconditional love. The fact that he does not wait for us to make the first move. And it's screamed all the way through the scriptures from creation to covenant to incarnation to the cross. God moves towards us. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself acceptable to me. No, what does Paul say? When you were yet on the wrong path, when you were sinners, when you were broken and you couldn't do anything, Jesus died for you. His actions show us that we are enough. But how do we embrace that? There's a shepherd here in this, in this psalm, and the shepherd provides everything that his sheep need. And so... His sheep feel safe, and they settle down into the pasture, into the green grass that's all around them, and they walk slowly next to the still waters. It's a beautiful picture of deep rest, 
deep contentment. Do you remember the last time you felt deep rest and deep contentment? Instead of things like anxiety and worry and competition and a forced life, an exhausted life. I like how Dallas Willard talks about this. Dallas Willard was an American philosopher, and he was also known for his writings on Christian spiritual formation. He wrote a book called Life Without Lack. It was actually a series of sermons on Psalm 23. Life without lack. I love that. He says, we are blessed to live in a world where there is a fully self-sufficient, generous God who wants to provide what is best for us and loves us more than we could ever imagine. But then he continues on. And he challenges us in his writing. He says, much of our effort to do things for the Lord is really the resurgence of our own desire to dominate and make things happen in our own strength. And what he's doing here is he's challenging the church. He's challenging Christians. This collection of followers of Jesus that formed this thing called the church that often is driven in a nonstop way. When I was in Colorado and I was doing ministry, I was this crazy California guy that moved out to Colorado and it was snowing and we had to shut down church. And so I was out driving anyway. I'm like, I don't stop. I'm, I'm just going to keep going. And I kept going, sliding right through an intersection. <laughs> Fortunately, there were no cars there. And so I didn't get into an accident. Sometimes life forces us to just stop and realize we have a God that is enough. I mean, this is all over the scriptures, kind of our own self-sufficiency, right? I mean, it starts with the Tower of Babel. You know, they're building this, this big tower and trying to do things on their own. It's Abraham not trusting in God and putting his own wife, Sarah, in danger twice. It's David who wrote this psalm, most likely, deciding, well, I'm going to count my warriors and see if we've got enough warriors. It's Elijah in the cave saying, I'm the only one left God. There's no one else. I've got to do this all on my own, which wasn't true. It's James and John taking things into their own hand, saying, hey, can we commit mass murder and bring fire down from heaven on the Samaritan village? It's Peter with the sword in his hand trying to take care of business on his own. And it's the current that we get caught in, in a place we call Silicon Valley. This is just life. But Jesus shows us another way. You see, enough is really easy to miss when our self-reliance takes over. And maybe that's why we need to be reminded so often. I know you guys know this right up here in your brain. But if we just needed to know it in our brain, then we wouldn't need to be reminded and let that sink down again, fresh and new in our hearts. When my daughter was eight or nine years old and we were living in Austin, Texas years ago, I took her out on a daddy-daughter date. And I, I just love those times when my girl was little. And, and I took her out to her favorite food, which was pasta. And we were just both putting the pasta away, having a great time. And I decided to tell Michaela just everything I could think of in the moment that made me just love her so much. 
just everything I loved about her. And so I just kind of real time started making this list. And I don't know how long I was talking to her, but I noticed when I was done, she was just staring at me. She had completely stopped eating and it was just quiet. And she had this huge grin on her face. And then she looked at me and she said, keep going, daddy, keep going. (laughs) Ah, we need to be reminded of this stuff. Down deep, all the way down to our toes. I had a friend that used to run a children's ministry. And I would, I would be the teacher every single year for our, our VBS. We didn't call it VBS, but I would teach the kids. Not every year. I did for three years in a row. In fact, I'm teaching VBS this year, right here. It's going to be super fun. <laughs> but we would tell the kids that God loves you, and then we would say, grab it. Put it in your heart and lock it away because you're going to need it. And don't we need it? Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, mature following Jesus type people we need to be reminded of that as I sat out on the porch for eight months meditating and journaling and praying on these six verses of scripture there was this story from the gospels that kept coming up over and over and over again and you know the story it's the story of Mary and Martha it's in Luke chapter 10 And I want to read you this story. They had a brother named Lazarus, who's not in this story, but he was probably in this scene somewhere. And then I want to just make a couple of observations that might be old to you, but they actually might be new to you as well. And so the story is in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The first observation is that embracing enough involved a movement that was countercultural. So this little family, these two sisters and and a brother named Lazarus, they were probably well-to-do. And, and they probably actually supported Jesus financially in his ministry. And Jesus and the posse are coming home, and there's going to be a party. This is the scene. There were lots of preparations that had to be made. There needed to be some hospitality that was shown. And in the ancient Near East, hospitality was often something that was life or death. It was a big deal. And we've got to wrap our minds around that, even just emotionally, because in our individualistic Western culture, we just don't get it. Yeah, hospitality, provide a good meal, be nice to somebody, and that sort of stuff. But in the ancient world, it was huge. It was commanded to be hospitable. In the New Testament, it's a requirement to be an elder in the church. This is a big deal, biblically. 
In fact, there's laws all over the Hebrew scriptures about being hospitable and kind to the prisoners and the orphans and the widows and the sojourners, the, the, the pals. <laughs> so this is a huge deal. And guess who steps up to the plate? It's Martha. She knows what has to be done. All the people in her home, and she's going to be judged on this. This is the way the culture goes. And it's not just about providing a comfortable atmosphere, but it's about communication. It's about communicating acceptance and love and relationship. And so hospitality is a huge deal. I, I, I've experienced this in some cultures. If you've traveled the world, you've experienced how important hospitality is. I've sat in the mountains in a hut in Ethiopia where this beautiful family probably spent everything they had just to feed me. By the way, it's the best coffee I've ever had. <laughs> now, this is, this, is, this is big time embedded social stuff going on here. But where was Mary? <laughs> What's going on, Mary? And so we have to kind of go back in time a little bit and remember that the rabbis at the time of Jesus were kind of at the top of the social ladder in many ways. They were well respected in their community, still are to this day. But in their day, rabbis would travel around, and oftentimes if you wanted to follow a rabbi, which would mean that you're a disciple, you had to follow that rabbi around. Some people called it walking in the dust of the rabbi because you would literally follow this rabbi. And there are some weird and wacky stories in ancient Jewish literature about what disciples would do. Like some of them would actually hide underneath the bed when the rabbi was sleeping. Nothing was off limits. They wanted to really follow a rabbi. And the rabbis wanted the best of the best to follow them. You only wanted the best of the best students to follow you. And the reason was is because you wanted your interpretation of the law to live on. This was your legacy. And you wanted your way of life to live on. This was your legacy. And ancient Judaism was actually quite diverse. So there were lots of schools of thought and lots of rabbis. And if you were a prospective disciple, you wanted the best of the best rabbi. And if that rabbi put you to the test and you passed, then he would take his yoke and put it on you. And you would learn from him. This is why Jesus says, take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me. The yoke is the way of life. It was the rabbi's life, his calling, his interpretation. There's some ancient Jewish writings that began about 200 B.C. and they ended about 200 A.D. And they're called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is sort of this rabbinical thought, this teaching. And there was this rabbi who was really famous, and he lived a couple hundred years before Jesus and kind of laid this tradition out. And he said that you need to have the wise ones in your home. Later on, the wise ones would be called sages, and then later on, the sages would be called rabbis. And so there's a couple hundred years of tradition going on here where you invite the rabbis into your home. And when you did, the rabbi would sit just a little higher than everybody else. And everybody would sit around at the rabbi's feet. This is why Paul said that he sat and he learned at Gamaliel's feet, the foremost Pharisee of the day in Acts chapter 22. And when you sat there, this old 
rabbi from 200 years before Jesus taught his followers. His name was Yose ben Yozir. He said, when you have the sages in your home, the wise ones, the rabbis, powder yourself with the dust of the rabbis. Shroud yourself with the dust of the rabbis. The dust was that way of life. It was that interpretation. And this is where we find Mary. So we need to take off our 21st century lenses, and we need to put on our ancient lenses for just a minute if we're going to feel the tension and the provocativeness of this story. This is not a safe story because you have everything culturally headed in one direction with the hospitality, and then you have Mary sitting in the place of a disciple, sitting in that culture in the male space. She had no business socially being there. Why would somebody sit in that space to be a disciple? Why would somebody be a disciple to follow the rabbi? Why would somebody follow the rabbi to carry on the teaching and their way of life? Why would somebody do that? Maybe they had a dream of someday becoming a rabbi themselves. Do you feel the tension going on here? And not only does Jesus say he's okay with it, but he blesses it. Embracing enough sometimes means that we have to go countercultural in how we live our lives. Sometimes we even have to think countercultural for the way that we think about ourselves. I told you the story last month of some of my learning disabilities, my dyslexia and Tourette syndrome. I have to tell you, for most of my life, when I walk into a room, I feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room. And as I was coming of age, I thought there's no way in the world that I could ever lead or be a pastor. I was good at sports, and so maybe something there. Enough changed my life. Maybe for you, God is calling you to something these days. Or he's trying to communicate a level of love for you that you really haven't felt. And you've walked with him for years, and he's trying to do something new in your life. May we embrace enough, the enough that comes from our great God. The last observation and the second observation is that embracing enough involved slowing down. And I've already mentioned this idea of taking a slow walk. But we have these two sisters here, and they're both people of great faith. Martha's not the bad and Mary the good. That's <laughs> not what this story is about, because we have to read the whole gospel. You see, we see Martha after her brother dies and goes into the tomb and stays dead because Jesus didn't show up on time, we see her run out of the house. Mary stays in the house, but because of Martha's great faith, she runs to Jesus in John chapter 11, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And listen to this faith. John eleven twenty two. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. You see, it's not Martha's lack of faith that kept her from sitting at the feet of Jesus and over in the hospitality side. I'm not sure what it was exactly, but I, I have a suspicion that Martha was a doer. 
Martha was a person of action. She got things done. This is why she runs to Jesus when Mary stays back. And oftentimes, if we are a person of action, if we're a get-or-done type of person, it's hard for us to settle down and embrace enough. Even though we know cognitively, theologically, that it's true. My older son is kind of that way. I used to lead high school trips, uh, uh, high school students on trips to the Tenderloin in San Francisco. For 10 years, we did this. And, and the Tenderloin in San Francisco, that's one of the most difficult places to do a trip. It is dark and it is a challenge. And we would go out and we would, we would pray for people out on the street, the drug addicts and, 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 and people that are out there that are homeless, people that are struggling. The prostitutes are out there. And we would also do things like medical care, and we would go into people's apartments, and we would try to help them with whatever they need. And, and that's the part my son loved to do. My 23-year-old, when he was in high school, I actually gave his team the most difficult assignment to go to this elderly gentleman's apartment who was blind that had thousands and thousands of cockroaches crawling all over it. And they just ripped up the carpet and they sanitized that place and they sealed cracks and holes and did all sorts of things. And this team of high school students came back on top of the world. My son is like that. He's, he's a doer. He's like, let's do something practical, which is funny because a few years later, he's on the same trip and they're walking out and praying for people. And he's fine with it. Okay, let's go pray for people. This is really important. But then he says to the youth pastor, hey, Doug, when are we going to do the real ministry? <laughs> he's just like a doer. He wants to get it done. And sometimes if we're wired that way, which I know a lot of you at Saratoga Federated are wired that way, it's hard to slow down and be at peace and embrace enough. If the sheep in Psalm 23 felt threatened in any way, if they were hungry in any way, if they were thirsty in any way, there's no way that they would have settled down and not had anything to want. But their shepherd is enough. Our shepherd is enough. Jesus, the good shepherd, is enough. In a world that never stops, we must find ways to pause and quiet our anxious thoughts, to slow down. We can't stay paused forever. It's not about living in a constant state of pause. We pause to be a gift and to be more effective when we come back to the community. Our kiddos need mommies and daddies and grandmas and grandpas that have restored souls. Our students need teachers that have restored souls. Our city needs first responders with restored souls. Our businesses need leaders with restored souls. Our churches need pastors and elders with restored souls. That first date was 30 years ago, and Holly and I have learned a lot since then. 
The longer I'm here, the more you'll hear about our crazy stories and how we have come up short many times with one another. But one of the things that we have learned over the years is that we're enough for each other. I mean, we're good with each other. And it's fun. And it's beautiful. And it's life-giving. Enough has changed our marriage. When I first came to Jesus, there's this verse from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah that it just opened up my mind and opened up my heart. Where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I draw you to myself with loving kindness. May you sense down to the deepest parts of your heart that God is drawing you to himself, that you are enough. Let's pray. Father, thanks for being our shepherd. Thanks for calling us before we ever even knew you were around. Thanks for forming us in your image and saying that it's good and that that image is still there and you're still communicating. You love us with that everlasting love and so draw us to yourself Thank you for the cross that communicates your love. Thank you that you rose from the dead that communicates your power. And therefore, we have power to walk in this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.